This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Todd Johnson. Todd Johnson is a leader, counselor, advisor, lawyer, and mentor. He is the founder and chief executive officer of IPAR LLC, an impact transparency software platform facilitating the deployment of capital to create and encourage human flourishing, and built by the Caprock Group, a multifamily office deploying $1 billion for impact. During more than 28 years as a lawyer, partner, and leader at Jones Day, Todd founded the firm's Northern California presence and served as founding and global head for its renewable energy and sustainability practice, where he served companies, funds, and nonprofits focused on renewable energy, sustainability, and using the internet and for benefit models to help our planet and its people flourish. Todd's social entrepreneurship and impact investing leadership dates back to 2000, long before mainstream use of these terms. He counseled, advised, and represented hundreds of organizations, entrepreneurs, venture and private equity funds, family offices, foundations, public charities, and related organizations seeking to address some of the world's most challenging problems, including extreme poverty, human trafficking, infant mortality, and technology innovation for education, philanthropy, health, energy, energy storage, and global development in some of the world's hardest places. He tweets at R.T. Johnson and blogs at businessforgood.co. Hi, Todd. Hey, Deb. So, Todd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you ended up in the space of impact investing. You're a trained lawyer, and for a long time, you held a pretty substantial role as a partner at Jones Day, which is a prominent legal firm with multiple offices nationally. What got you into the investment space and specifically into impact investing? Yeah, I wish I could say that I had some moral awakening that took me there, but it was really my clients. I came, I came out in 2000 to open up Jones Day's Silicon Valley office and uh, had previously been in Washington, D.C., where the environment was one of politics, not entrepreneurship. When I got out, when I got out here, I was working with um, investors and increasingly with entrepreneurs. And I started to notice a pattern of entrepreneurs who were really passionate about building a company or building a technology or a product or service that was going to help the world. Loosely writ, um, they wanted to see the world a better place and for people to flourish in it. And so I got the opportunity to work with a shade-grown, organic, fair trade coffee company that was giving proceeds back to help at-risk children in coffee-growing regions of the world. And I got to work with a solar company and a smart metering uh, company. And I started to notice this pattern and in 2007, gave up running the Jones Day office in favor of starting a new practice in renewable energy and sustainability for the firm. And that's really how I got started. Well, maybe before we go any further, we should define our terms here. What is impact investing? And what distinguishes impact investing from regular investing? Well, I like to say that every investment has impact. The question is whether it's positive or negative impact. And the real challenge is today we lack transparency. We lack the ability to see into whether or not a particular investment is having positive or negative impact. 
impact, I think, is broadly writ, a capital that's deployed for the purpose of helping people and the planet to flourish. Now, that's that's always when you're in the investing world, especially in what I call the alpha return part of the world, that has to be balanced against providing shareholder returns and maximizing that value. But lots and lots of folks have come around to believe that we've overemphasized maximizing shareholder value and wealth creation to the detriment of the planet and people. So I would basically say impact investing is capital that's deployed to help people and the planet to flourish. Can you give us a case where good profit has overtaken nature of the good for people and the planet as you've defined it? Well, I don't think you have to look very far. I mean, of course, by the time you're talking about large corporations, there's such an embedded stakeholder base and it's difficult to unwind a path. So for example, today, a lot of people think that the fossil fuels industry needs to get out of fossil fuels and focus more on renewables. But of course, they have on their balance sheet very expensive assets in the form of oil wells or oil deposits that they've invested in over the long term. And just writing those off is not an option for their shareholders and their stakeholders. But if you look at startups in particular, I think there is an emerging group of investors that are very focused on trying to strike the right balance between shareholder return and impact. But the legacy of venture, especially over the last 20 or 30 years, has been very skewed in favor of financial return. And you know, this, this poses a big quandary for the entrepreneur who really wants to do good through their company because it, uh, investors are super focused on an internal rate of return, not a return on investment. Just to unpack those two terms, a return on investment would say that if I invest $100 and I get paid out $500, that's a really good return on my investment. An internal rate of return would say, well, let me ask you a question. Did you do that over one year or did you do that over 20 years? And it's very time sensitive. And venture capitalists are focused on time. The time is really important to them in terms of returns. So what you see is a lot of entrepreneurs who start out wanting to do good through their company, becoming pressured by that time element to create value first and quickly and get to an exit or an IPL and leave behind some of the mission. I mean, this is really important. This, I think, helps explain a lot of what we see on the level of technology and its unintended consequences in its production. We're talking about a really important element of the ecosystem here that I think oftentimes gets overlooked by those of us who are interested in the consequences un that are unintended of technology. And you said something earlier that I thought was very interesting and important to focus on. You said every investment has an impact. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the role that investing plays in the ecosystem of technology production writ large. What is the relationship between investing and what ends up getting made? Yeah. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist. I believe in the goodness in everybody. And when I look at something like Facebook, I'm pretty confident that when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he had a vision of connecting communities together online in a way that really hadn't been facilitated prior to 2000. Of course, we I don't know if you've seen the documentary Social Dilemma, but we're starting to see some of the chronic and really awful polarization that's occurred because what Facebook has learned over time and what its investors care about is a return on that investment or an internal rate of return. And where does that happen? Well, it happens when you start segmenting the population. 
on Facebook, when you start giving people what you think they want to see algorithmically, and then you start to create these echo chambers. And I think that's a, a perfect example. I don't think the tech started out being evil in any way, but it's had a lot of really bad consequences. And part of those are driven by the need to produce better and better ad placement for the folks who are buying ads. And in that respect, you know, I'd be quick to say there's a whole ecosystem challenge, right? I mean, even I look at my 401k to see how is it performing financially. I am in some respects an investor of those dollars that's getting put into venture capital funds. And my appetite for better returns is part of the problem. It's driving the venture capital funds to then focus on internal rate of return instead of anything else. And you made an important connection there earlier between kind of maxim or truism in Silicon Valley, which is this unquestioned belief that we should move fast and break things. And on the investment side, looking at returns in terms of time as well, and that things that move fast and break things are also more financially lucrative and incentivized by investors. That's, that's really interesting. Is it just time that incentivizes an investor to invest? Or are there other things that might incentivize an investor to invest? I know that investors are not one block. There are people who have multiple interests. But I'm curious if you have any observations as a whole. What do investors look for when deciding whether or not to put money into or behind an idea? Is it the idea? Is it the idea of the returns on the idea? Is it the idea of how quickly something can get built or how quickly it will make money? How do investors typically decide what they're going to invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. I heard one venture capitalist describe it this way. He loves investing in good ideas, but he would invest in a great entrepreneur with a so-so idea any day over a great idea with a so-so entrepreneur. I think that investors are looking for both. And what's happening slowly, but it's happening with some acceleration now, we're seeing investors add to the equation, not just financial returns, but also impact. And that movement you know, was driven largely by philanthropy 10, 15 years ago. But today, many family offices, even a number of the registered investment advisors who manage money on behalf of high net worth individuals or family offices are looking to try to have better and better impact with their investments as well. And that ends up getting written into different theories of change, different interventions that they pursue. Uh, you have a whole cadre of family offices in the United States who are focused on climate and renewable energy. And they've come together and formed a loose association of 350 family offices that are trying to get better and better at deploying capital for return, yes, but also to reduce greenhouse gases. You've opened up an entire spectrum of things that I want to discuss, especially on the legal side, when so many of the questions that you're talking right now also intersect with law and policy. But I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of your answer to my question, which is that these investors want to invest in great entrepreneurs. And I want to know what a great entrepreneur is. How do you identify a great entrepreneur? How do you define a great entrepreneur? How do you find a great entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I think traditionally there has been a bit of a bro culture in Silicon Valley 
which unfortunately hasn't caused, I'm, I'm not sure the blinders have fully come off there. So great entrepreneurs tended to be male and tended to be white. But the other attributes that I think venture capitalists were looking for are things like, have you done this before? Because obviously, if, if you've succeeded in building a startup successfully previously, your chances of success are far greater second time around. But I also think they're looking for people with a particular complement of both passion sort of willing to do anything for their idea, they're that passionate about it, and brains or brilliance. Sort of the ability to pivot when necessary, to be self-aware enough to take feedback from the board, feedback from the investors, and change or modify when they need to. And I think we're all sort of, and I say we all, let me be clear, I'm a older white male. So I am getting better at understanding how the prior framework for how we defined a great entrepreneur was too narrow, that there are lots of great entrepreneurs out there who've never had the chance to get venture capital funding. And we're starting to see funds created to try to focus on people of color, women, entrepreneurs, trying to start Start to equal the playing field a little bit so that we can look to all the great entrepreneurs that are out there. Did that answer your question, Deb? I think so. I have a follow-up question, which is that one way that I've seen investment decisions get determined is through relationships and networks. And as you've said, you know, there's kind of a bro culture that is at the inception of Silicon Valley. People tend to want to hire or see value in people who share their cultural background. People see problems or see potential in other people who share their problems, right? Who want to solve the problems that they also have. And through these kinds of networks, I think that part of what it means to get your idea funded, part of how this happens is getting it on somebody's desk or getting your idea in front of somebody who's in the decision-making role, particularly a decision-making role that involves financing. And something I think about a lot is how this ends up perpetuating existing networks of power and contributing to some of what has been termed Silicon Valley's diversity problem. I wonder if you could comment a little bit more on the role of networks and relationships in Silicon Valley in particular, and then maybe help us think a little bit about how investment structures built along these kind of ossified and deeply rooted foundations and changing the culture of what gets made, what gets invested in, and the, the broader culture of technological production writ large. That's a great series of questions, and I, I hope I can honor it appropriately with my response. I'm not sure I'm an expert in the area, but I, I do think everybody brings some social capital to the table, as you refer to networks and relationships. I think it goes beyond networks and relationships. It goes to second and third tier connections. I think what's what's happened in Silicon Valley, and again, I always hesitate to ascribe evil intent because I've heard it even from venture capitalists at top tier funds. They lament some of what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years in Silicon Valley. They understand that part of it is broken. And some of that is a result of their success back in the 70s and 80s when they were making money hand over fist for pension funds and large endowments. And you know, I've heard one venture capitalist said, I would love to take more time to look at numerous versions of the same idea coming from people with very diverse backgrounds. The challenge is there's so much money sloshing around Silicon Valley looking for the great deals. 
I need to jump fast or someone's going to beat me to it. You know, in fact, another venture capitalist told me the story. He said back in the day when he funded Cisco, Cisco had already been passed on by 15 venture funds. And he decided, sitting at a top tier fund, that this husband and wife team at Stanford, their idea was good enough and they were good enough to invest. But what he did is he picked up the phone and called another top tier fund partner and said, let's do this together. We'll have a greater chance of success if we do this together. And he told me that story and then said, and the challenge today is if I were to look at a Cisco and decide to invest, there'd be 10 other Cisco's within two weeks because other venture capitalists would see that I've invested in this deal and they'd want to stand up another competitive company. And I think that creation of competition drives some really bad behavior without people really starting out with, uh, with the idea that they're going to end up in a bad place. Wow. That's a tremendous insight. I want to ask you a question from the legal side, which has to do with, and, and maybe can speak to your background in working in, in corporate law, which of course is a structure for much of the tech industry. How do legal standards, things like B Corp standing, how do those intersect within investment structures? Do legal structures determine how investors invest at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would first say that how investors invest, they're looking for the least amount of friction for deploying their capital. And so when it comes to legal structures, part of what the venture capital community on Sand Hill Road did back in the late 70s, early 80s, is they stood up a venture capital association um, to have a bunch of lawyers come together and agree on a standard set of documents that would always be used for venture capital deals as a way of both driving down costs and reducing friction for them in evaluating what to invest in. One of the challenges with that, of course, is the preference was Delaware. The challenge was that Delaware law up until five or six years ago would not allow a company and its board to think about social impact or environmental impact at, with equal weighting on the foot of financial return. And California was the same way. The Secretary of State of California wouldn't let you file a certificate of incorporation that had any kind of social or environmental purpose for the company. And so we went about to change those laws. And in 2012, we managed to do it in California. And now there's 33 states that have written either a separate corporate version, like a benefit corporation, which can get the certified B Corp mark, or it's called something else. In California, we have something called the Social Purpose Corporation. And the idea is to allow the entrepreneur and the earliest investors to decide to put on equal footing environmental or social returns as well as financial returns. And what I really want to tease out of that answer here is that the way that we structure legal foundations ends up determining so much of what ends up happening in the culture of technological production. Yes. But, you know, it is often the case that you have a company that has such a strong culture that the legal structure doesn't matter. And I would use as an example, Patagonia. Now, Patagonia is a little bit of an unfair example because it's been owned by Yvonne Chouinard and his wife all along. But Patagonia was originally incorporated in a way that did nothing vis-a-vis -vis legal structure to set up the mission that they've gone on to pursue in terms of the environment. And I, I do think that uh, we often place a lot of emphasis on the legal structures and forget about the culture. You know, in some respects, the legal structure and the legal documents are sort of your lowest common denominator, or what I like to say is they often become breach management tools. 
But by the time you're at a breach, you failed. So what is it that keeps you doing better than that? Well, I think it's the culture of a place. And I've actually worked with organizations that are so focused on the good service that they're developing that the internal culture, you know, they're, they're trying to save the planet and they're killing their employees while they do it. Uh, you know, culture has to be thought of in terms of people and planet both people inside the organization and people outside the organization. I mean, Patagonia is a great example because their their culture, I think, really comes from a place of wanting to do good. I don't know as much about their internal culture. I know about what they're trying to do externally. Could impact investing shift the culture as well? And if so, how could we build a tech ecosystem that's more intentional in terms of this kind of developing a culture of ethical intentions? I think that most entrepreneurs have a sense of what they'd like to achieve in terms of impact. And finding investors that are aligned with that is a huge help to pursuing those goals. That said, we are living in a world that's full of storytelling and is really lacking transparency when it comes to the data. And this is, as you know, something that I'm quite passionate about at this point. I like to say that data without stories are soulless, but stories without data are useless. And in the impact space for the last 15 years or so, we've been very heavy on the stories, the anecdotal evidence that what we're doing is creating the right set of outcomes or outputs. But we've been really slow at providing people with data that's measurable and that's comparable so that within an asset class and a theory of change and a particular geography, you should be able to look and see that if I deploy capital with option A or I deploy capital with option B, I'm going to have different types of impact results based on what the data tells me, not just whether the story grabbed my heart, but what does the data tell me? And I think that's the future where we're headed. That's what gets me excited is that this merging of storytelling and data is going to produce greater transparency and do a better job for the entrepreneur, for the investor that's aligned with the entrepreneur, and ultimately for all the stakeholders and beneficiaries and users of the products and services. I think it creates a race to the top, ultimately. You know, I should mention that you are the CEO and the founder of IPAR, which, as your website describes it, is an impact management, transparency, and data analytics software platform designed to facilitate the deployment of capital to create and encourage human flourishing. So I quoted from the website there, and I had so many questions about the work that you're doing, but maybe the first question should go back and, and touch on this point you've made here about data. How do you use data to, and I'm quoting from your website again here, create and encourage human flourishing? What data points are you looking at? And, and what can data tell us about how to create and encourage human flourishing? Well, whenever you dive into big data lakes, you start to realize that you think you know something and then you don't know anything. When we started down this road, we had this vision that transparency around impact data would really start to change the market. And we still believe that quite firmly. But as it turns out, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than we thought it was going to be. You can talk in terms of impact, and that's a great term, but what you really need to start doing is unpacking the specific intervention, the specific theory of change that someone's focused on. And then if you want to make it comparable, you also have to equalize for asset classes, 
for the kind of capital that's deployed, because if it's philanthropic capital that we're talking about, anyone can give money away to have impact. The question is, can you do it and achieve anything close to alpha return, or are you making a concession to do it? And I think the, the other thing that we, we think is a big variable there is geography. It turns out that if you want to do something to alleviate poverty in East Palo Alto, you would develop a whole set of interventions that would be very different than if you wanted to alleviate poverty in Ethiopia. And it's just a fact that geography does start to skew the metrics that you use to measure and the learning that you get back on how an intervention is working, whether or not your theory of change was right. And within a particular asset class starts to give you some data of comparability to see where to be deploying more capital versus less capital. The classic example I like to use is there's a lot of money out there, a lot of money going towards impact. And we believe that it sits on a curve. At one end of the spectrum, you have money that's trying to make the highest possible financial return and still have a focus on impact. So one area that might be included in that would be solar electricity generation. It's gotten to the point where federal government subsidies aren't needed. Solar energy long-term power agreements can be signed up. And lo and behold, since the sun is producing that electricity for essentially free, it turns out that it can be a really viable financial investment over the long term. So you might, in a fixed asset class, achieve a very high rate of return or internal rate of return on a solar investment as compared to something else. At the other end of the spectrum, you have philanthropy people who are giving money away to try to have impact. And a lot of the base of the economic pyramid solutions and interventions are funded with philanthropic dollars. So projects in Africa and India and other parts of the world that are hugely underserved uh, with populations that are very at risk, living in extreme poverty, it's mostly philanthropic dollars. And in between the two, you have some kind of a curve, whether it's a bubble or a cliff, I don't know, uh, but you have some kind of curve of what I would call concessionary capital, capital that's willing to be deployed for some return, but not the highest possible return. They understand that the impact is going to be achieved at some cost to the return. Here's what we don't know, and here's why I think impact investing makes a big difference. Philanthropic dollars would stop giving away money to solutions that could be funded with return capital. Because they would say, we've got other places that really need our philanthropy. If the capital markets are going to come in and fund this area, why would we fund it as well? And I think what we're coming to realize is those intersections do occur. Now, where they occur and in what interventions and geographies and theories of change and asset classes, that's the big unknown. And that's what we're trying to map and figure out with the data that we're building on the IPAR platform. Those five variables make a huge difference. And if we could get them aligned with sufficient data behind them, not just anecdotal evidence, but real hard data that suggests that a dollar placed here is going to have high value both in return and in impact, we would free up philanthropic dollars to go do other things. I mean, what's your metric for deciding what the impact is? What qualities specifically are you looking at when you turn something into a data point? I mean, again, it depends on the asset class. Let's start with that. If I'm doing a conservation play and my idea is that we need more old growth forests and we need to do a better job of preserving them, 
but I've got an idea. I think that we can buy up large tracts of old growth forests, that we can put forest management easements on the property, and then we can sell the property at a higher value, both because it's appreciated over time and because we've improved it. And now whenever it's sold forever and ever in perpetuity, it's going to have those forest management easements on the property. Well, it's pretty easy to measure impact of something like that. You look at how many acres have we done that for? That's a definite benefit. It's an output and an outcome that we could all align around and say, okay, I get it. There's more old growth forests being protected over the long term because of this play. Similarly, GHG, greenhouse gas abatement, is another area. Really easy to measure. You can look at option A versus option B and see that if option A is reducing or mitigating more greenhouse gas than option B, you have a very definite improvement in impact. It gets much more difficult when you get out of fixed assets and when you get out of environmental interventions. Because in the social arena, when you start talking about people, you have a whole host of other variables. And honestly, I can't tell you today that we know solutions for every single intervention or every theory of change. In fact, we think we've identified 17 deserts for impact metrics that should be chosen based on interventions or theories of change that people are pursuing. That is to say, no one really knows what they should be measuring. There's no broad agreement out in the marketplace of what should be measured. That said, we think that there are efforts to try to better define that. And we see cohorts developing of a combination of academics, investors, foundations, and others who are very interested, say, in early childhood learning and development which was a surprise to me, but it turns out there's no broad agreement on what should be measured to determine success in early childhood development and learning. But this cohort has developed to start to say, well, these are the things we think are important, to put those down on paper, to publish a white paper, and to let people react to that, and to see if some kind of standard might develop over time. I mean, as somebody who's looking at the data in this section, I'd be very curious to ask you a couple more questions about that. You know, in my class on the ethics of technology, we talk a lot about the nature of the good and we debate what the nature of the good is because there's been a lot of people over thousands of years who have been very interested in this question and we've never been able to come to a consensus about what that term actually means. You talked a little bit about impact investment and technological production as being good when it is good for people, good for the planet. What does an impact investment look at in terms of the good or what should it look at? Good for the people, good for the planet. What does that mean, very specifically, by impact? That's such a great question. I actually made someone in the social enterprise space sweat on their upper lip when I asked a similar question back in 2008. Are you sweating on your lip? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I love the question because I don't think anyone can answer it perfectly. But I think questions like that keep us striving for answers. And that's why I love it. So let me just tell you this vignette or this story. I won't say the person's name, but they run a very large conference over in England every year um, around social good and helping support social entrepreneurs. And I got invited to this conference to speak a number of years ago and had the opportunity to meet with this person whose wealth was being deployed for this purpose. A very laudatory endeavor. But I, in the course of our conversation, I asked him, tell me, what is good and how do you know it? And I think that's essentially what you're asking me. And I would say, first of all, 
the impact arena is is a big enough tent for lots of people to answer that question in different ways. Some people come at it from the perspective of their faith. They come into the impact arena because they're not looking at ethics. They're looking at more foundational questions of good and evil. And they're saying, how should I live my life? Where should I devote my energies, my time, talent, and treasures? And because of their faith, their beliefs, they say, morally, this is what I need to be doing. And I think the ancient faiths, when you look at them and compare them to one another, have some foundational truths that I think we in the impact investing community need to be less afraid of, of wrestling to the ground and owning as part of what we're trying to do when we talk about doing good with our money and doing good with our enterprises. And then beyond that, you would say, you know, as a collective, a society or a group, we can define certain things that may not be morally or so foundationally divided into good or evil. But we would agree that from an ethics perspective, our social contract is going to be, these are good. These are things that we should be focused on. Now, what I, you know, in the area of philanthropy, I, you know, I always try to remind people that just because you have a charitable purpose doesn't necessarily mean you're doing good the way I would define it or the way you would define it. So, for example, we have charitable organizations that are trying to allow a woman the right to choose about an abortion. And we have charitable organizations that are trying to stop abortion. We have organizations that are supporting guns and are opposing guns. We have lots of charitable organizations that are on two sides of the issue and they're still getting uh, tax subsidized contributions from people. So societally, we've decided to write that pretty large. And I know that there will probably be people who listen to this podcast and say, well, does that mean we're rudderless? And I would say, no, I think each one of us has a rudder. And the real question is, how deep does our rudder go? Now, I know why I do what I do, and I have a very clear sense of what is good, but I don't necessarily want to impose that on you. I'd rather you came along for the ride and joined me. Or if you don't, that's your choice. And I'll find other people of like mind who will join. That's a probably dissatisfying answer for what you were looking for. Do a lot of other investors in your view think in similar terms? What would encourage other than, you know, a sense of ethics, an investor to move into impact investing? I mean, maybe I'm a little skeptical, but it seems to me like, as we were talking about earlier, many investors move into the space out of a specific financial incentive with the aim of making money and with the aim of making money quickly. But I could be wrong. You speak to investors more than I do. So what, what would it drive investors to impact investing? Is it just this intuitive sense of wanting to do good or are there other factors involved? And this is what I'm really interested in here. Do you see a change or shift in the culture toward using investments for positive impact? Is this something that you see as growing? It's absolutely growing. I mean, you go back six or seven years and there were about 50 self-described impact investing funds. Today, by our count, there's 600. That's huge growth in a short amount of time. Now, are all of them defining, defining impact the way I would? Probably not. Are some of them greenwashing or impact washing? Probably. And so I think it deserves a skeptic's eye. So kudos to you for being one of those skeptics. That said, back to my original comment, you know, every investment has an impact. 
The question is whether it's a positive or negative impact. And I think there's an opportunity as we become a more data-centric in making decisions around impact. I think it, it becomes uh, quite feasible and ultimately an imperative for people to look at whether they're having positive or negative impact. And I think that will change investment behaviors. Put it another way, maybe a more practical way. By example, if, if I had two investment opportunities presented to me and they both were projected to produce very similar rates of return or internal rates of return, and one of them was based on the data going to have a much higher positive impact than the other, why would I ever choose the lower impact or negative impact solution? And I, th I think I would ask that question to anyone who listens to this podcast in terms of their IRAs or their 401ks or where, you know, where they're putting money into the stock market. If they had the data, wouldn't they make a different set of judgments about how they're deploying the capital, all things being equal? That is to say, returns being equal. Now, sometimes it's the case that returns aren't equal. And then it's a balancing test. But I think it does change behavior. I think it absolutely, part of the reason you see places like BlackRock and the Business Roundtable and others starting to talk very intentionally about impact investing is because they realize that this is a truth, that if people could see what was having positive versus negative impact, people might not be willing to give up financial returns, but they'd look for the solutions that same return that was producing better results for people on the planet. Do you think that investors have an obligation to do that? Yeah, investors come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, so I'm always reluctant to say what investors should do. You know, someone who's got a little bit of money in an IRA uh, in the Midwest of the United States is probably not going to have a lot of tools available to them to figure out what's going on vis-a-vis -vis impact in their portfolio. I think the registered investment advisors and the asset managers that are managing that money do have an obligation to start to provide the data that's going to help people become more informed around how their capital is deployed. And I certainly think that the very high net worth or ultra high net worth pockets of capital have an obligation to do the same. I want to ask a question from the entrepreneurship side of things. How did an entrepreneur go about creating a socially responsible company? What obstacles do they face if they're committed to a socially responsible vision when they go about that attempt? What gets in the way, in other words, or could get in the way of pursuing a mission that is ethically intentioned at its inception? I don't know if you've seen the uh, website that Stanford worked with me to put up, but there's a, a website that we created specifically for social entrepreneurs who are asking that kind of question. And it's called sestructures.stanford.edu. And I hate to give a plug to Stanford, but they were very gracious and generous in devoting resources to build the site. And, you know, I think there are a number of criteria that an entrepreneur needs to be asking themselves at the front end before they decide on the what. Things like, if I really care about impact, how do I align incentives around impact? Because the tool that gets used, for example, with employees most often are stock options. And stock options are driven straight to that internal rate of return focus and nothing else. That's how stock options become really valuable is the company blows its numbers out of the water and achieves a very high internal rate of return on an exit and everybody gets to cash out. That says nothing about impact. That doesn't help align the impact to every employee. 
So what would be the set of incentives you would create as an entrepreneur so that your employees were aligned with impact? And we see people getting very creative on this, people that are providing bonuses, for example, around KPIs or specific measurement goals for performance that are built around impact in addition to job performance and creating greater wealth for investors. Sometimes investors push back on some of that. And what I like to say to uh, entrepreneurs is it's different for, for different entrepreneurs, but say an entrepreneur whose primary market are consumers can always use brand as the thing that is critical for them. And it will be critical to investors that they build a good holistic brand. And so you can bake a lot of mission into brand and you can preserve a lot of mission into brand as long as you're not surrendering too much of the financial return. You don't see as many buy one, give one models or BOGO models these days. You don't see as many uh, giveaway models or give back models where people are giving money to different organizations. But I, I would say that a lot of a lot of companies are starting to up their philanthropic giving and their employee commitment to community and community service. And that whole area of social responsibility is unleashing quite an army on underserved neighborhoods and at-risk population groups. And I think it could be better directed but it's an encouraging sign. I've heard you talk about mission drift, which I think is one of these obstacles. You talked about mission. So what, what is mission drift? Why does it happen? And how can an entrepreneur avoid it? I worked it? with a number of teams coming out of Stanford's extreme affordability class. And these are interdisciplinary teams from around the Stanford campus, all graduate students who come together for a two-quarter class to try to build products and solutions for charitable organizations around the world that are serving um, <clears throat> at-risk population groups or underserved population groups. So Embrace, the Infant Incubator, it was one example. D-Light, a solar-powered LED flashlight or light for kids to be able to study at night when their huts are off-grid, for example. And I remember talking to the D-Light founders early on in their journey, and they were just thinking about turning it into a for-profit company. And they were talking about, did they need to be specially created with the impact embedded. And their answer was, I think, pretty decent answer. They said, look, the more of these lights we sell and put into the hands of people living in extreme poverty, the better we're going to be, you know, the more impact we're having. And so that's also going to help our financial return. And we think our investors are going to be well aligned just by deploying their capital with us to make the highest possible return. And I said, well, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis. But what happens when the investor that's just come in says, you know what, you could sell this for four times as much in the United States to backpackers because it's a solar powered LED flashlight and it could be the cool new thing for REI backpackers. And they sort of paused for a moment, took a deep sigh and said, okay, that wouldn't, that wouldn't fit. That wouldn't work with this vision of what we're trying to build. So I think the challenge for every entrepreneur that has impact baked into the model of what they're building and what they're trying to accomplish. I think the challenge for them is culturally to inculcate that mission and that vision into everything they do. And what I say to CEOs is that's not a one-time thing. That's an everyday thing. I mean, 
your proudest moment as a CEO is when you hear the lowest level employee within the organization evangelizing your mission and vision to somebody outside the organization, because then you know it's seeped all the way through the organization. And living it out is the other piece. I mean, it's not just repetition, but then it's living up to that set of values. So I'm on, on the board of a couple of organizations, but one of them, they're focused on hardware, you know, the, the hard stuff to build and get funding for because software has a much higher internal rate of return and hardware requires a lot more in capital costs. But one of the things they're confronting is the fact that uh, in, in their program mix, uh, the people coming out of PhDs and postdoc programs in the hard science area are largely male and largely white. And one of the things they really want to do is focus on diversity and promoting diversity in that arena. Well, how do you do that? That's something that requires a clear vision and a clear mission and an articulation of that. And then it requires hard work uh, to go out and to put that into practice so that people see that you're not just full of hollow words, but you're actually doing something about it. And thankfully, they've been doing great things about it. Having built an office for Jones Day in Silicon Valley, I knew two things. I knew that having been at the firm for almost 15 years at that point, I had a really good sense of what the firm's culture was. And from having worked with a bunch of clients in Silicon Valley over a few years, I had come to understand something about Silicon Valley's culture. I noticed some of a mismatch, especially in the legal industry and what lawyers were accustomed to out here and what Jones Day expected from their lawyers internally. And so I understood very, very clearly in building an office where I was recruiting people from other law firms in Silicon Valley, that focusing on our mission was half of my job. I, I needed to work to inculcate every single recruit into the firm to an understanding of what the firm's culture was different from Silicon Valley culture. And I learned three things from, from that exercise. Number one, that is really hard work. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of repetition, and you almost feel like you're you're doing sort of kindergarten with people because you keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. But the goal is that everybody understands it clearly. But I turned over the reins to let somebody else run the office, and it was somebody sort of grown up in Silicon Valley, and I started to see the culture change and wane. And what I realized is everything, all the hard work I had done was very easily undone by just a lack of attention. It, it, it started to fall apart just because no one was really paying attention to it. And then I got asked to come back in and take over the reins again. And what I learned was rebuilding it after it's fallen off is way more difficult than building it in the first instance. So to the entrepreneur who thinks that they are spending too much time on the mission and vision of the organization for impact, I would say, you don't want to do it after it's fallen away, after it's drifted. It's way harder then. Keep it up. Keep going. What advice would you give to that entrepreneur who's trying to maintain a mission-driven company or organization? Other than repetition and a background as a kindergartner teacher, <laughs> what kind of skills, what kind of personality, what kind of strategies would you propose that they practice? First of all, just being really clear on what your mission is, how you build that into the way you're earning revenue, being super focused on the kind of external funding you're taking and trying to find mission alignment wherever you can. 
And then thinking about how you align incentives internal in the organization, not just to good financial returns, but really promising impact returns. And then beyond that, I would say the three biggest challenges are as many companies scale, they lose their secret sauce. Getting bigger is sometimes viewed as better, but it For anyone that's been inside an organization that scaled really rapidly, many entrepreneurs would say that we lost our soul or we lost our mission, we lost our vision. We we went after just getting bigger faster as if that was the end goal in and of itself. And so scaling creates a whole set of challenges for mission and mission drift. So does governance. I think who's on your board, the kind of oversight that's being provided from the board level all the way down through the organization and an understanding of how impact plays into the mix with financial returns is really important. I think I've seen super well-intentioned entrepreneurs with a great sense of mission where they align incentives, they do everything right, but their board just doesn't get it. And there continues to be a friction and that friction either usually results in an entrepreneur giving up or getting out, which is a sad thing. And then finally, I do think that organizations need to be super sensitive to costs. And there are all kinds of costs. There's what we pay for a good or service to make our good or service. So the cost of goods um, or COGS as they talk about it. But there's also costs to employees, costs to people's well-being. If you make them live at the headquarters of the organization because you provide dry cleaning health services and pet grooming all in one, are you really creating the healthiest culture for your employees or are you just trying to manipulate them into spending more hours at the office? I think those are the kinds of questions that the entrepreneur needs to be asking. I want to close with a few last questions, perhaps as somebody who's now in a position where I'm advising entrepreneurs. I'm Cal Poly's newest fellow at their Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, which is uh, a new role that I'm taking on. And there's some questions that I have about investing writ large and impact investing specifically that uh, I'm curious about as I you know, go about this process and try to help mentor the next generation of people who I hope will become impact entrepreneurs. I'm interested in thinking about how we can get the next generation of technologists who are thinking ethically, I think, and impact oriented as this new generation into a place where they have opportunities to develop their ideas. What suggestions would you have for people in a place where they can mentor students who might become innovators? And how can we do better as we guide the next generation of technologists and entrepreneurs and investors uh, into this space? I'll focus on the mentoring piece to begin with. First of all, this movement to do good through business. We like to think of it as a new movement, but it's been around for a long, long time. And in fact, in many respects, the modern corporate area has done more to destroy the origins of business because it used to be that the business owner was somebody who lived in the town, ran their business in the town and was viewed as a champion of the town and its people. And for reputational reasons and lots of other reasons, they tended to be uh, very charitable, very giving, and real stalwarts within the community. And they naturally mentored lots of people by their example and by their time. We've gotten away from that as we've gotten to massive mega corporations that are multinationals and larger than many, many countries in terms of their annual revenue. And so it presents a whole different set of challenges at two ends of the spectrum. 
for the entrepreneur who's starting out in the technology arena, I think they usually think of themselves like the small town business owner to begin, but they have this dream and vision that they're going to be Steve Jobs and that they're going to build a corporation like Steve Jobs did at Apple. And I think the challenge is to think about what would it take to hold on to some of the best qualities that the small town business owner had around caring about reputation, caring about the well-being of their customers who were the townspeople, caring about their employees who were the townspeople as well. I think for the entrepreneur, that means looking for mentoring from different places. That means there's going to be some older folks who've done their job before and have a passion for impact who might be able to say, hey, look out for these pitfalls that I encountered. There might be younger people who have a similar passion and a need for a cohort of similarly situated entrepreneurs to be able to come together and whiteboard ideas on how do we deal with this challenge or that challenge and to bring in someone to speak to them. And there also might be the opportunity to look for solutions in unexpected places. I'm a big fan of thinking in terms of head, heart, soul, and strength and trying to bring all of those to bear when you're doing something. And entrepreneurs often bring their head and their heart and they think they've got all the strength they need or they're going to build it. And they often forget about the soul. You know, they often forget about what's going to keep them healthy and keep them passionate about that vision over the long term. And I think people need to be attentive to that because if we just think about the human body, you know, the head and the heart and the muscle that provides strength are really nothing without the life force within that brings it all together and integrates it. And so I'm often counseling entrepreneurs to think in terms of building someone at their head who's maybe older and done this before, who can speak into them, a couple of people that they can walk alongside and do that with and use as real authentic sounding boards, not just of their successes, but a place to go that's private and discerning and they can talk about failures. And then position themselves in a place where they're also providing that input to someone who's younger, that they can sort of channel everything they're learning to someone else who's maybe a few years or half a dozen years behind them. I think that's sort of the perfect architecture. And it, it may not be four people, it may be eight people. It, may, it might take multi-disciplines to do that well, depending on the product or service or vision of the entrepreneur. But I think that kind of structure works really, really well. Do you see the next generation of technologists thinking more with their soul? Do you see a shift or a change in the people who are here and representing the future of the tech industry? And if so, what advice would you have for them in terms of developing and financing their ideas? I see a lot of heart and I see a lot of smarts and a belief that they're indefatigable, that they can bring all the strengths they need to bear. But integrating all of that in a place that provides for the well-being of everybody along the way, that I think is more of the missing link. And even things that started out in the impact investing space, like Social Capital Markets Conference. When we started that in 2008, the vision was create a big tent gathering, get everyone together, philanthropy, investors, entrepreneurs, change agents, governments, Get them all together under one tent and see the great things that will come out of it. Even there, it's become much more practitioner focused, much more focused on what's the smartest new idea or how do we keep up the passion or how do we double our strength and how do we manage to center ourselves in a way that we remain other centric, that we are 
thinking about people and the planet and how to make it all flourish. Some of that is missing. And I don't know the advice, the perfect advice for the entrepreneur is to say, be attentive to it at the beginning, the middle and the end, because at the end of the day, passion will only take you so far, but it'll wear you out. It'll use up all your strength and your brain will become fatigued. And if you don't have that thing that keeps you centered and calm and focused and passionate, it'll wear you down eventually. There's a question that I hate asking other scholars because prediction is the lowest form of scholarship. And I I don't get to ask this to media folks because prediction is an equally low form of journalism. But I think that investment is all about prediction. So I feel like I can ask you a question about prediction with the hope of getting a meaningful answer here. What direction do you see impact investing taking in the next decade or so? If you go back 10 or 15 years, there were gatherings happening that were coining the phrase impact investing for the first time. And at that time, the the most robust thinking about impact investing was it was this new asset class. Back then, I thought the vision was too small. I started to say to people, it's not an asset class. It's, it's something that should infect every decision that's getting made. And I really see us moving into that era finally, where people are asking the question of what is my impact? Is it positive or negative? Not just am I investing in a class of fund managers who are producing positive impact, but how is all my money invested and is it having impact, positive or negative? And if it's having negative impact, should I be thinking about making returns in other places? The next 10 years, I think, has a fundamental rethinking of the primacy of shareholder maximizing shareholder value at the expense of global environmental and social impact. Uh, one last question and then I'll let you go, which is we're at a particularly challenging moment right now. I don't want to date this podcast too much, but we're in a moment of tremendous fragility and tremendous volatility in our political culture, in the culture of our health systems, in our economic culture. Do you think that impact investing could change the structure or the future? of any of these things in this particularly volatile and fragile moment? Do you see a role for impact investment right now? And do you see any of these things impacting impact investing on their own terms? I'm always a little bit of a skeptic of sort of how public policy or particular initiatives can change culture. And I think the things that you're referring to are much more of a cultural challenge that we're facing today. Culturally, as individual, highly polarized in this country, culturally in terms of how we've defined what the American dream is, and, and honestly, culturally in terms of how we've defined what American exceptionalism is. So I don't hold out a hope that something like impact investing is going to change the culture, but I do find it really encouraging that people are stopping in the midst of global pandemic and looking for opportunities to do better, to recreate business models for good, that the whole idea of impact investing has gotten a boost in the arm, so to speak, and has accelerated since people have first started in shelter-in-place orders. I think that's a positive sign of where we're going. Now, where the cause and where the effect is, I don't know. 
Well, thank you very much, Todd. Deb, thank you for the questions. They were fantastic and hard, and I just hope I did a good job for your listeners.